So when I came to the US first, that was one of the things I invested a lot of time in is developing not just the relationship between the people and the team, but actually formalizing when we set objectives, not just a cascade of what does the boss say, what do we set as our commitment to shareholders, to then take that and break down and ask each member of the team to go and partner with others in the team and say, look, if I'm going to deliver this this year, I need you to help me to do that. I want to make sure that's also on your priorities list. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Lead the Team. I have a great one in store for you today with Ronan Dune, who is the Executive Vice President and Strategic Advisor to the CEO of Verizon Communications which is the leading U.S. telecoms provider. He was formerly the Executive Vice President and CEO of Verizon Consumer Group, where he helped define a new era of possibilities with the introduction of 5G, which we're going to get into today, and was responsible for voice, data, and video products and services to more than 120 million consumers every day. Now, before coming to Verizon, Ronan was CEO of Telefonica UK, also known as O2 the leading UK wireless operator and one of the UK's most admired brands. He's also held senior positions in banking with Banque Nationale de Paris, which I'm probably messing that up with my Alabama English here, XL and Waste Management International. And Ronan actually also represents Verizon on the board of Yahoo. Yes, that Yahoo. And is a non-executive chairman of Six Nations Rugby Limited that oversees commercial and marketing operations for men's and women's international rugby tournaments. And kind of winding this up, but man, there's so many darn awards here. I'd like to highlight just a few for you. He was named Lloyd's Bank National Business Awards finalist in 2014 and Ethical Corporation CEO of the Year in 2015. And then in 2016, he was the Sabre Awards EMEA CEO of the year. And in 2019, the American Ireland Fund actually honored him with their Corporate Leadership Award. And then just to keep the trend going, he received the 2020 Transform- Transformative CEO Award in Leadership, which is given about the CEO forum. Holy smokes, Ronan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I I like to sort of shrink these down a little bit and actually did because there's so many, (laughs) so many (laughs) things in here. But one of the things that may be jumping out at people right out of the gate is this whole thing with rugby. I mean, this is, I mean, you can sort of see the trend in executive sort of rising leadership. And then you're like, okay, he's, he is so active, I guess, in Six Nations rugby as an (laughs) executive chairman. Maybe tell us a little bit about why, how, and what, <laughs> you, and why you got involved in that. Well, yeah. sure. And the first thing to tell your listeners is that the U.S. will be hosting the Men's uh, Rugby World Cup in 2031 and the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2033. So coming wow. to a stadium near you. So, um, so you plan these things very far in advance. 
We do indeed. And uh, any of your listeners who know anything about rugby will know that Ireland is currently ranked world number one in rugby. So I've had a passion for sport all my life, lots of sport. Okay. Thoroughly enjoyed in my years in the U.S., um, NFL, you know, I have basketball, hockey, lots of things. But my true passion is uh, is rugby. So I got the chance when I was mm. moving to being an advisor at Verizon to take on one or two more external things. And so now I chair the the biggest national, uh, the biggest, I should say, annual tournament in rugby, which is the mm. Six Nations tournament, which is between the home nations of Ireland, England, Scotland, and Wales, and then France and Italy making up the Six Nations. So exciting time. World Cup is next year in Paris. So if you want to find out about rugby, come and join us in Paris and have a so, break. Well, so thanks for explaining that. And y'all, if you haven't seen, watched a rugby match, it's, it is worth checking out. So full yep. of action, so much more continuous than, say, watching NFL, which is like 10 seconds and stop, five seconds and stop. Uh, really entertaining to do, do that. Now, throw a little curve at you here. What? So in your rugby life and your sports life, how has that informed your leadership style? Well, it's interesting because one of the things I did at the beginning of the pandemic was try to distill down some of my leadership philosophy. And one of the key things that I wrote down was to be an effective leader, build an effective team. And while that may mm. sound obvious, I think the point that's in there that has the analogy to sports is, look, we all love our Super Bowl heroes. We all love our quarterbacks. But I'll let you into a secret. You won't win the Super Bowl playing three or four quarterbacks. You know what? There are different places. You need linebackers. You need wide receivers. Yeah. You need the whole yeah. thing. You need a 300-pound guy on the line of scrimmage. That's the beauty of team. Mm -hmm. It's not everybody doing the same thing. It's everybody understanding which role they play so that when it all comes together, it produces a better outcome. And so that sports analogy very much drives my attitude to team building and leadership. That makes a lot of sense. And we do live in this world of star power. And it just seems like, you know, the Tom Brady's of the NFL or uh, LeBron James or whoever happens to be, you know, they're, they're the ones that sort of get the big, biggest paychecks and the most celebrity. But they'll be the first people to tell you that they can't do it without their team. So and it's just so important for leaders uh, to to remember that, and I think sports is a great place, you know, for it for us all to remember. And even if uh, you, you might have some wise crack people out there saying, "Well, tennis is an individual sport," but I'm like, "No, no, no. There's a team supporting for them, right?" Yes, big team. It, it's it's huge, and you know, tennis is a great example of yes, putting it down on the court uh, during the match is down to the individual, but everything that's done in preparation. And in some respects, I think tennis is probably the best example of the on and off field coming together uh, mm. and creating um, exceptional outcomes. So you as a, as a senior executive, what are some things that you've done to develop your own team and really build that out for yourself as you've gone along? Whether it so, be in the office or even outside the office. Yeah. So a couple of things. The first thing is developing the concept of team because it's it's mm. not a given, Ben, in every organization that people form naturally into teams. Even people who report to the same boss don't always think they play on the same team. Mm. So the very active 
development of team and the theme spirit. Uh, and there's great analogy from rugby, if I may, which is England have only won the World Cup once in 2003. And their coach at the time, Sir Clive Woodward, basically pulled the squad together at the beginning of the run into the World Cup about 18 months beforehand and said, pretty much you guys are going to be the people subject to injury who are going to see us all the way through. I'm not going to set the team rules. Why don't you all go away? And they essentially wrote the rule book for themselves. And peer to peer, they held themselves accountable. They set the rules about what they could reasonably expect of each other. And I think there's a really strong insight there that says actually peer moderation, peer influence is something that's perhaps underestimated in a lot of mm. leadership and management uh, teams. And in the same way as, you know, a quarterback has all the calls and maybe they have them on their sleeve, the truth is it's great him having all the calls, but if everybody else doesn't know and understand what to do in response, then it's not going to be very effective. So this idea of peer, I think, is really important. Mm. So when I came to the U.S. first, that was one of the things I invested a lot of time in is developing not just the relationship between the people in the team, but actually formalizing when we set objectives, not just a cascade of mm. what does the boss say, what did we set as our commitment to shareholders, to then take that and break it down and ask each member of the team to go and partner with others in the team and say, look, if I'm going to deliver this this year, I need you to help me to do that. I want to mm. make sure that's also on your priorities list. And by doing that, you essentially bind people to common outcomes. And Ben, what that builds, which I think mm. is compelling, is this idea of if you create a common context inside mm. a team or an organization, what you do is actually give each person the confidence to exercise their judgment because they know what position they're playing on the team, but they also are a subject matter expert in their own area. But they don't mm. always have the confidence to execute if they're not sure what play has just been called. So yeah. that's what makes it a very effective team. So many good insights in there. And for the leaders listening today, I mean, Ronan really hit hit something on the nail on the head with this thing about sort of cross-functional isolation. So you're, you may have a, a genius marketing person and finance person, and they may be running their team so effectively, but so much can get lost between the different teams. So it's like, how can you bring them together? And running, I really liked your idea of giving them the common context and encouraging them to talk to one another and to make sure that there's some common goals and outcomes that they can work together on because i think during the pandemic especially when people are so remote there's not that water cooler conversation as much as there used to be and leaders really have to be so much more proactive they're not going to just bump into the cfo or they're not going to just bump into the head of marketing you've got to make those interactions happen and i think what you did is give them a reason to talk to each other and set the expectation and it sounds like it worked out pretty well for you it did, and it does. But the other thing, if I can build on that, Ben, is that I mm -hmm. think what's key there is that sometimes people confuse what I would say are objectives or ambitions with deliverables. And mm. a simple example is Verizon is you know, an incredible network engineering organization, but building networks in and of itself is not what Verizon's business is. It's an incredibly important deliverable, but it's creating meaningful experiences that are valued by our customers, mm. that are enabled 
by great technology, by great networks. But just building the network doesn't achieve. Imagine running the mm-hmm. railroad. I've laid the tracks and mm-hmm. I want to be paid out my bonus. But somebody forgot to order the uh, rail cars. Somebody forgot to do ticketing. It's not a, it, it's a deliverable. It's not an outcome. So always making sure that in a team you understand the difference between essential deliverables and the outcome you're trying to achieve and not confuse the two. Yeah, because, I mean, that that makes so much sense. And it is so easy to lose sight of it because, I mean, good grief, you're building the network. But what is the experience that we're trying to create? And it's to be honest, it's not very inspiring to just build a network. It's like, what's the whole point in building the network? Uh, in the first place, is it being able to, for loved ones to c- communicate more effectively or, you know, think about first responders and things of that nature, being able to get through in a crisis situation. That's the thing for the moment that matters, what we did mattered. That's what it's all about. That's why yeah. engineers get up every day. Well, let's, let's dive into another question that we were touching on, uh, before we got rolling here on the, on the show. So how do you create an environment or how have you in the past created an environment for great decision-making amongst your leaders? So um, I have a view, Ben, and it's based on, you know, 30 plus years of work that the bigger the organization, the more the natural momentum of the organization encourages you to act. And as a result, you fall into the trap sometimes of a ready, fire, aim strategy rather than a ready aim fire, i.e. that the organization's natural momentum means that you react to a situation, a change in the market, an opportunity. And mm-hmm. therefore, the, the the view that I've built is sometimes the more hurry, the less speed. And this mm-hmm. idea that spending more time defining what the question is will help you to deliver a better outcome. And I had a really rich um experience of that earlier in my uh, in my career. I had the privilege of being the CEO of a carrier in the UK before coming to run Verizon Wireless and then Verizon Consumer. And that uh, carrier is called O2. And some of your listeners may have heard of the O2 Arena in London. Happens to be the world's most successful live entertainment venue by ticket sales. But the story of the O2 is an interesting one. The building that houses that arena is called the Millennium Dome originally. And again, some of your listeners may recall was, it was a folly created by the British government to try and celebrate the dawn of the new millennium. And it was a building that essentially failed, didn't meet any of its targets, didn't meet Uh its visitor targets, its customer satisfaction, anything. And on the night of the millennium itself, they actually failed to get people in and out of the venue to be able to celebrate at the moment when the clock struck. So pretty much a disaster. So roll on seven years, and O2 is a relatively newly branded company inside the telco space, uh, having previously been part of British Telecom, the traditional incumbent carrier. And the O2 brand was a young, fresh brand. And we went to the public company board and said, we've got this great idea. We're going to put our name and hoist it over this um old building, which has been a complete disaster as the Millennium Dome. And the board thought, you guys are crazy. Why would you do that? Mm -hmm. So the question they thought we were asking was, should we sponsor and put naming rights uh, agreements in place 
with the building, which happens to be on the river in, in London. What the company's management board were asking was, we as a brand believe that great wireless companies are in the experience business, not simply the technology business. And guess what? The people who had just signed the contract to operate this venue, a company called AEG, which operates LA Live and various others, yep. is the number one or one of the top two companies that runs operating operations mm. and live entertainment all around the world. So here's this thing about what question are you answering for the ready, aim, fire? The question was, would you give up your name to an unsuccessful building? Answer should be no. But the real question was, would you like the exclusive partnership rights with the world's most successful operator of live entertainment venues to create an O2 experience? The second wow. question is a compelling mm -hmm. one. The board believed we were asking the first question and really struggled to agree uh, for us to go ahead and do it. And in the end, uh, almost biblical-like, after three, three asks, they washed their hands and said, we're not going to say yes. We're not going to say no. You, the operating company board, decide. And the truth is, it's been a phenomenal success. And what mm. it really taught me is spend the time to work out mm. what question it is you're trying to answer. And it may not be as obvious as you think it is. That is a very cool story. Uh, I'm a huge live music fan. Y'all, we were talking about that I had been to Newport Folk Festival uh, right before we got on here with my family recently. Uh, and that's, I, I think that is amazing because the question almost, they were asking the wrong question and Correct. they almost missed the opportunity. And totally. Man, and now I, I mean, we were in downtown Nashville recently. We also we went to the theater. They call it the Ascend Theater downtown Nashville. Like you're once your name is associated with the, and especially with with this stadium, which is even a much bigger deal. Yes, I mean it's such a huge branding opportunity, and so it's kind of funny. I was thinking about sort of the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial side of this question is, well, you should ready fire, ain't. Because people get caught up in like making, you know, like, like, uh, analysis paralysis yeah. and like, that's the flip side, but when it you're, is. but it's a different situation. It is. And this has been where this idea of context, if mm -hmm. your organization has a, has that narrative of a common context, then when somebody moves inside the organization directionally, They'll mm -hmm. probably move broadly in the right direction. But some organizations are so command and control from the top down that mm -hmm. honestly, you can storm that hill. But if it's the wrong hill and it's the wrong direction, and actually, you know, the competition is over here, the fact that you moved fast and you know you rallied before dawn and you got up that hill, it's a pyrrhic victory. So combining the two, create the context inside the organization mm -hmm. so that people know broadly directionally, and then make sure that you act with with speed, but with clarity about where it is you're going. Yeah, I, I love that. And so understanding the context, so as a leader, this is another great perspective from Ronan to really think about in terms of how you're crafting your messaging and making sure that everyone also understands what what the real situation that you're trying to address is. There may be situations where it is better to ready fire aim, but there's all other ones 
where you take the the approach that I run running outlined here. And uh, man, that's effective. So are you, um, do you go back to the stadium very often for shows? Well, um, one of the very generous things that AEG did was when I moved to the States was they gave me a life membership of the O2. So I, <laughs> I get the chance, I, I get the chance to, to, to go back a lot and, and then not to stretch the analogy too far, but yeah. the other thing around, around that is that those sorts of emblematic decisions also create inside an organization the power of the can-do, the power mm. of the possibility. And to your point about it's not always right to spend too much time analyzing, but bold decisions, and sometimes the ones which might be in the ready-fire-aim category, sometimes can define an organization, can define its ambition, its mm. commitment to customer and can create that rallying cry. I'm a huge believer that leadership um, needs to have within it, and I personally see this as my role as a leader, is a chief cheerleader cheerleader and a chief storyteller. Mm. Because that idea of creating the compelling narrative and then driving an organization to meet that ambition, I, I think everybody wants to go to work, even in these days where you may be going virtually rather than physically. You want to be part of the team. You want to have that sense of purpose to achieve something that people didn't think was possible. You know, I love that line, you know, way back when from, from NASA saying, I'm here to put a man on the moon. Everybody mm. wants a job that feels like we're doing something important. Yeah, and every time someone sees that stadium on TV that works for O2, oh. they're thinking they're going to remember this story and you said storytelling. Yeah. And so you can yeah. tell this, I mean, great stories, they form culture. They help people understand what to do when the leader's not around to answer questions and help people to, uh, to react that way. I'm curious from a storytelling standpoint, uh, you've obviously spent some time thinking about this, about the storytelling side uh, with some of these great stories here. Is there a storyteller uh, that you kind of base your, style on or is there a framework that you like to use when you're thinking about your leadership stories it's it's a great question from a you know an, an inspiration uh, from the storytelling side it's more cultural you you won't be surprised ben and we riffed on this just before we came on air but uh, with fanning you have that irish connection and that yes. gift gab as they say uh well we we all have a little bit of it whether we ever kiss the blarney stone or not we all have a little bit of that <laughs> but i think the idea that you talked about frames and structures so i'm an accountant by by background the cpa as we would say in the u.s a chartered accountant as we would say in europe but one of the things that i learned is that great structure and people who write whether it be fiction or non-fiction will tell you this great structure but the key about structure is Structure creates hooks and brings people along. And this idea of great communications is that you lay hooks, you lay um, little tippets, and then you come back and you reinforce them, you embellish them, you enhance them. But what it means is that people are there thinking, I want to know more. I want mm. to know what happens next. And so that idea of creating a structure in that, that you're trying to write not just a short story, but great companies are writing a compelling multi-chapter novel. Yeah. And the opportunity for each mm. leader 
is not to write the book, it's to write a chapter, but also create space based on what they did in the chapter for the next person along to write in their piece, their contribution, because you've created mm. open opportunity, not just simply define the answer. And I think that idea in storytelling of there's a space for everybody to hold the pen at some stage and that you're creating options for where the story goes rather than always closing things down. I think that's a really important part of the storytelling as well. Yeah, and I, I just love that. And I'm trying to remember some of the some of the books that I read about this, but they talk about how we've evolved it as human beings and how we've survived. And because we're not the strongest animal out there for sure. But one of the things is, is we've, you know, we, we collaborate well together, but also we learn from yes. one another. And of course we didn't have written language for years. And so we depended upon great storytelling and I think one of the things that I remember about about a lot of the more native civilizations that have or, or, or people that 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 still rely upon this, part of the trick is to tell the story, and then pull the people who were present into the story, make them part of the story because they will remember it more, and they're much more likely to be engaged with the story or the long haul if they're part of it. So that ties in incredibly well to your chapter analogy. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Wow. Well, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? You're, yes. You're, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I wrote my first book, that was something that I was really focused on is the, is the hero's journey. And just like you said, really trying to have a framework that teaches the lessons along the way, but also makes the reader, you know, part of the journey. So that's a framework that, that makes the listeners can check out. Yeah. Joseph Campbell. Wow. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download the simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. So let's keep rolling here. What's one trait that you wish you could instill in every employee and why do you think it's important? Curiosity, and I, without hesitation. So I would describe myself as a 15-year-old curious kid. Uh, <laughs> a 15-year-old. Right. Curious kid. And, and, I, and I have been for uh, a 40-something years now. I won't go any further than that. <laughs> but the idea of curiosity is when you stop being curious, you stop learning and when you stop learning you stop growing so this idea that you always want to have this innate curiosity because if you have attitude and curiosity almost everything else can be taught mm. but without attitude and curiosity even if you're taught it you're not necessarily going to do anything with it and the other thing i love about curiosity and attitude is critical but the other thing i love about curiosity is that curiosity allows the outside in. Mm. And there's always a danger, even in successful companies, that they increasingly look inward to their yep. reference yep. because they think their own success is the reference example for them. But actually, the really great, sustainably great companies are the ones who actually always look out 
and to bring mm. that back in to throw additional light and perspective on the opportunities and yes, the successes that the companies had. And if you're not curious, you don't look out. Well, that is a great point. And st- I mean, history just littered with examples of really companies drinking their own Kool-Aid. And the bigger they are, the more experts they've hired and they have inside the organization. And sometimes those experts are curious and they're constantly leveling up, but not always. And if you always go to your internal expert without considering the outside, uh, it can be a tricky, tricky place to be. And probably in U.S. corporate history, one of the greatest examples of that is Kodak, as most people know, produced (laughs) the first digital camera. And then looked in instead of looking out mm. and persuaded themselves that that was the enemy, not the opportunity. Yeah. Wow. Listen up, everybody. A really <laughs> good point there. So what are some ways that that you ensure that you as a leader are continuing to look outward versus inward? Well, two things. Sometimes when people ask about this topic, they say, okay, so tell me where you go for leadership advice or what books or other things. I, my view of the world is a, is a different one. Uh, it's mm. that it's how the pieces are put together. So what I try to do is spend a lot of time outside my organization, whether it be telecoms for the last 20 plus years or others. And what I'm looking for is what, what we might say in, in corporate speak, platforms and ecosystems. But really it's mm. about how do the pieces come together? What are the things that are out there? So what I'm always looking for is not solutions. I'm looking for capabilities. I'm looking at things. If you mm. think about, you know, it's easy for somebody in a in a business presentation now to say, you know, Uber and Lyft would never have happened but for 4G. It's mm. absolutely true on reflection. But who was looking for yeah, who the, made the call <laughs> to monetize the long tail? Because yeah. that, you know, hmm. we've been talking about monetizing long tails in different products and services and other things for a hundred okay. years. You know, got but it. Okay, somebody put, hmm. oh, I could have a different approach to monetizing the long tail if I had distributed technology available in the hands of all of the potential long tail users. Oh, it's a mobile phone. Those are the sort of things. And so I'm always interested. The thing that keeps me curious hmm. is. How stuff works. I nearly used the S word there. How stuff works. I was going to use another S word. Um, that's okay. That's the most, that's the we most don't have an explicit curious. podcast, but I don't think that would tip <laughs> us over on, on Apple. Yeah. Because it's fascinating. Mm. And it's not the that's, what did they do, but it's just what are the possibilities. And not mm. to you know throw us completely off piece here, but I think that the next generation of mobile technology and 5G is massively more disruptive than 4G was or 3G was or 2G was. And I think Mm -hmm. we're only just scratching the surface of the new business models, the new ecosystems that will evolve when a device doesn't have to be a device anymore because to get connected to the network, you won't need a big compute capability on board. It'll be done at the edge of the network. The latency on the networks is such that Mm. there will be no lag time between a request and a response. All of those things, not to solve them here, but just think about mm-hmm. it essentially means that the rules of physics are essentially now being made a, a, being made available to every mm-hmm. man, woman, and child in the country who wants to start something up or wants to do something different. It's not well, just a hydrogen 
collider in Europe, in CERN, where it's the only place you can get these things. Actually, low latency is going to be available to everyone. And it's a game changer. So that's so, the story. So I'm glad you dangled that out there. Uh, what? So leaders listening today, what's a question or two that they should be keeping in mind or asking themselves and their team regarding getting ready for 5G? So I think there's two things. Uh, and just a, a momentary aside, the difference between 5G and 4G, not in a technical sense, is that there are currencies in 5G, i.e. it's divisible. So if you want latency but don't need capacity, you can have latency. If you want capacity but you don't, it, you know, how fast it goes doesn't matter. So you can chop this up and mm -hmm. you can serve it how you want it. Never able to do that before. And also you can build it privately. So if you want your version with more of this and less of that, you as a company can have it built and designed and delivered to you in your manufacturing facility or whatever it may be exactly as you want it. So that's the first thing to say. It's completely configurable, much more flexible than anything we've ever seen. But the thing that I think is the most interesting is that a lot of technology, which we already know, but which we've never been able to find a business case or an, a, a, a return case to mm -hmm. scale all of a sudden, if the barrier in your industry to entry is, well, I can't afford to put a $1,000 device in every one of my customers' hands to use my service. Mm -hmm. Well, if the phone gets dematerialized and you can put a $5 device that's still connected to the network, that still can compute at the speed of light because the compute's done at the side of the network, does a $5 device make your business model? You can do okay. 100 times as many. Those are the sort of questions that people should be asking. Wow. I've not thought of that second piece or, or the first piece really on, on that, but I think very interesting and great thing. So I love a great payoff for the listeners to listen to these deep, you know, listen deeply, which a lot of them do, because man, this is a great question. Two things that you can bring to your board, bring to your team right now, to start provoking the right conversations. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So we have time. We have time for a couple more questions. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see here. Once a time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career, and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? Uh, I, I had a um, something that at the time I wasn't at all sure I would survive. So when I was the CEO of a carrier in the UK, and we had a catastrophic network failure. Mm. And when I say catastrophic, but let me put it in context, a third of all our customers lost service on the same day. So that, in the case of the UK, was like 10 million customers whose phones didn't work. Now, I'll tell you, Ben, very few CEOs survive a failure where they fail to deliver an essential service to 10 million people for 19 hours. But the real insight and learning is on two levels. First one is effective communications. And the second is what you invest in your customer and how it can pay off in times of crisis. Because if you turn your customer into a fan, fans forgive. Customers mm. don't always forgive. Fans do forgive. So let me just put some meat on the bone. So uh, something started to happen in the network. We didn't understand what or why. And it had an unusual effect. Normally in the network, what happens is a typhoon or a, whatever goes through and the network goes down. And everybody mm -hmm. in that particular location knows what's happened. They're not happy about it. 
but there's an external event. Mm-hmm. In this situation is you and I are sitting in a bar, my phone goes off and your phone stays on. We're both on the same network, so it's not location specific. And over a period of a few hours, phones just dropped off the network, just disappeared, dropped off the network, lost their service. So after 19 hours of us not knowing what was happening, but the situation getting worse and worse, we had a communications problem. And essentially the problem was telling people we'll update you as soon as we've got something to say had kind of run out of currency. And so the narrative uh, journalists, Mm. business journalists, newscasters, everything, and we were headline news, surprise, surprise. The question was not just what's happened, but Mm -hmm. how come your CEO hasn't resigned already? Um, (laughs) And so we got to this moment of truth where we decided we have to change the narrative. But how do you change the narrative? And look, this is a very short version of a very interesting thing about crisis management. I sat with my comms director and I said to him, in this situation, what do we need to tell the listeners, the audience, whatever? And two critical things that I would say to all of your listeners, don't lose sight of who your audience is. Mm. In a moment of crisis, people immediately react to, it's the journalist or it's the CEO or the chairman of the board or it's whatever. Respectfully, all important people. But the only audience at this stage is your customer. Because if you lose the customer, you lose everything else. If you keep the customer, then all of the other things can be dealt with in the tidy up afterwards. So we took the decision. What was it we needed to do and say? Mm-hmm. And my comms director, brilliant guy, Richard, said to me, you need to answer four questions. What happened? Why did it happen? How do you make sure it never happens again? And what are you going to do to make it up to us? I said, brilliant. I don't have the answer to any of the four questions. So what do I do? (laughs) So what we did was we turned the communications conundrum upside down. And so we went to the CEO of our largest corporate customer, who happens to be the CEO of a network, a television network in the UK. And we said to him, look, firstly, I called him. I said, I want to apologize for the service outage. But I also want to respect the fact that you're an important customer and offer you the exclusive interview, which might be my last, but at least you'll get it on your channel. So we <laughs> went live to a few million people. At Classic, you'll appreciate this band down the line with a satellite uh, truck outside my door, me standing there talking to somebody back in the back in the studio. And so they went, you know, both barrels straight at me. And so I... I said to the lady, Kay, who was interviewing me, I said, Kay, look, before we get into all of this, there's one thing I'd like to say is if you're a listener or viewer and you're an O2 customer, you want to know something out of this conversation. You want to know what happened. You want to know why did it happen. You want to know how you're going to make sure it never happens again. And you're going to want to know when it's all tidied up, how are you going to make it up to us? And Kay, those are the four things that we as a management team and 250 of the world's best engineers are working on. And as a result, even though I didn't have the answers, she, like everyone else, nodded and said, you know what, those are those are the four questions that I'd want to know the answer to. So we ended up buying ourselves mm. the time because people believed we were doing the thing they would mm. reasonably expect us to do to answer the questions they would reasonably want to put to us. And we won the argument on the day A few hours later, the network started to come up. We won the battle on social media by being responsive. And it ended up being a case study 
for crisis management communication that was taught to hundreds of corporates mm. in the UK. And I live to tell the tale, and I'm still in telecoms, you know, <laughs> quite a few years later. So really, but there's oh. a lot in there for people to think about. Make sure you keep the eye on your audience. Make sure what questions it is that people would really want to know the answer to. And be honest enough to acknowledge, even if you don't have the answer, that, that it's a legitimate question. And integrity and authenticity is what actually came across. And mm. customers who were fans said, you know what? I believe them. I trust them, and I'm going to give them some time to solve it. Better not happen again, but you've already said you're going to make sure it never happens again. And we won the day. Yeah. Well, congratulations on surviving that and also <laughs> taking so many lessons from it. And I love the lesson around integrity and how when you're really honest about the situation and you tell people where you stand, even if you haven't solved it, you were able to really just repair trust and like and if someone trusts you your customer trusts you they can deal with some of the mistakes that happen along the way and the problems and stick yeah. it so stay in it for the long haul with you so man it's so a run and wrapping this up today man what what fun stories uh, what's your parting thought for our listeners look the last thing i would say is if i was to take just one kind of wise word is if I wrapped everything that I've learned and everything I've forgotten over the last 30 years, I would say the most important thing to realize is it's not what you do, it's what you make happen. Mm -hmm. And the whole logic behind that briefly is that no matter how good you are, your output is finite. There's only so many hours in the day, so many days in the week, but your impact and influence can be infinite. And ultimately, yeah. great leaders create space into which others grow. So. Think always about that. It's not what I do. It's ultimately what I make happen. If mm. I can create space, others can grow into it. That's what I would say. To great, finish off. great note to finish on today, Ronan. Thank you. Fantastic. Really enjoyed it, Ben. Thank you so much for the invite. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.